Hi, I'm Adrienne Elise Tarver, and I'm joined by Angelique Owens, and welcome back to the Exquisite Corpse podcast. This podcast is a series of conversations between artists and architects who've been elected by their peers to the National Academy of Design for their extraordinary contributions to art and culture in America. These are the National Academicians, and they are at the core of the oldest artist-run organization in the United States. This is Exquisite Corpse. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're really excited about this episode. We're joined by painters Susanna Coffey and Shangri Majumdar. But first, let's do our historical acknowledgement. Hi, my name is Sarah Reisman, and I'm the chief curator at the National Academy of Design. The National Academy of Design was initiated by artists and architects to fill a void in the American artistic landscape of the 19th century. But we recognize our history has excluded many communities and cultures whose lineages and practices must be included in this country's art historical canon, indigenous peoples, people of color, queer and non-binary individuals, and people with disabilities. We are committed to a process of dismantling the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and white supremacy. We're excited to move forward and have conversations that reflect the important questions and issues of today. We are the National Academy of Design, and you're listening to Exquisite Corpse. Angelique, so happy to be back with you on the podcast. Hey, Adrian, I'm happy to be back. So this episode, we have Shangri Majumdar and Susanna Coffey, who are both painters. I'm very familiar with their work. Susanna was my advisor in grad school, actually. Uh, I was in the painting department of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she was working there at the time. Nice. And Shangram's this great painter who I followed his work for a while. So how familiar are you with their work? Um, actually, not too familiar, but I did do my homework. Uh, I did research on both of them, and I also realized that I had a nice resource for the Out of Many Talks that we did last fall. Uh, and so slight plug for those, definitely check those out. Um, we did a series of talks with art historian, Dr. Kelly Morgan for our 2021 digital annual exhibition. So you can definitely enjoy those on our website. But first of all, you worked with Susanna in school. That's crazy. So you actually knew her, knew her. Yeah. So like, what were you, I know you were doing a lot of painting or were you doing a lot of painting in grad school? Because I feel like you work with a lot of different mediums. Yeah, I do now. And that was definitely a turning point, a pivotal point for me. Um, My background is painting very thoroughly. My undergraduate and graduate degrees, I was in the painting department. Nice. And I love paint, but I had an identity crisis in grad school. I wasn't sure what kind of artist I was. I was making some non-painting work, experimenting a little bit but still very attached to that identity of being a painter. So there was a point where I was making this miniature house that I started because I was going to make paintings from it. Oh, wow. And then the end, I, the end of the semester, the end of the, the end of my degree, my thesis project was actually this miniature house and taking photographs of it. It was based on my childhood home and I made uh, for the thesis exhibition, I had photographs and sculptural objects based on my childhood home and memories but I, I I went through this whole this whole confusion of like, can I even call myself a painter? And mm. yeah, that was about the time that Susanna was working with me. 
uh, we had this like the last email, you know, we communicate with people before they're on the podcast. <laughs> and the last email was Susanna, who is just the sweetest, always has been. Um, she remembered this house I made in grad school. Oh, wow. And what did she say? I'll I'll go ahead and just like read a direct quote. On another note, I enjoyed hearing you speak about architecture and the episode with Mary Miss. I remember so clearly the work you did while you were at SAIC when we were working together. I love the houses, the intricacy of the spaces. I've never forgotten that work. I would love that. And I have such vivid memories of your work, Adrian. It's like so heartwarming to hear that because you would just assume and like, I don't know, like I teach now, like I don't remember everything. So I'm like, oh, that's really nice. Well, it, it, they're vivid. I remember because the, the images of the house are so, so clear. Well, before we get, I it's I like would love to listen to you talk about my grad school work, but <laughs> I'm gonna. Oh my gosh, that's actually really sweet. She remembers you. That's saying a lot. I know. I mean, it's I just don't expect a professor. I mean, to remember me, let alone my work. And so mm. it was just really, it's really heartwarming to hear that. But she, she's basically remembering this time in grad school when I just was grappling with my identity as a painter, and she mm. really supported the exploration of different materials. And she is an amazing painter. Yeah, honestly, I from the little research I did, um, I saw that she actually started her self-portraits to prepare for a teaching position. And so like from that process, she just kept going and going and became enamored with the process. So... Yeah. So now she has this whole archive of years of doing self-portraits, this archive of her face. And it's really, I think, an incredible project to see. It's so interesting to hear about just your relationship with paint and how you just navigated that during grad school. And I guess I'm interested to know, like, how have you stayed committed to using this medium and how has like seeing Susanna and Shangram's painting practice um, inspired you? Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't know what I was committed to when I started exploring, but I, I've throughout my career kept coming back to painting. It's just second nature to me, especially exploring different ideas um, and painting in different painting mediums. So ink, uh, oil paint are the kind of the two main ones I go back and forth with. But I ultimately have just a deep love for the material, its abilities, mm -hmm. its history, and my love of paint affects the kind of work I make regardless of the material is what I'm finding. Sometimes people point that out to me and they can tell I'm a painter, even if I'm making a video or a sculpture. But it clearly affects the way not only that I make work, the way that I look at work, the way I investigate mm -hmm. work. It's just based deeply in my love of the material. Oh, wow. And I just, yeah, I love when painting is more than a means to an end that you can look at mm -hmm. a painting or a painter's work and you see the experience of the paint, uh, artists that are really good at color relationships and like the way that the paint next to each other, the different textures, the buildup of the paint, how they're moving the brush. It's just seeing that investment in the material and the visibility of the material. It just like reignites my love of the material. So I keep coming back to painting even as I explore other materials. Mm. I definitely can see just the importance of investigating material. Like I think it's always important to explore its limits and I feel like I've been going through a similar process with my practice as well, you know, starting off with photography. Um, I feel like it's a pipeline for new mediums and finding new ways to express. And so just after finishing grad school, I think I'm definitely have been taking some time to rediscover new interests and also just kind of grappling with, am I still an artist in this in-between space of exploring new mediums? 
I mean, I definitely relate to the that space in between, that space after grad school. I was so insecure about calling myself an artist when I was in this period of time with no studio. I like moved to a new place and nobody knew me as an artist. And to say you're an artist mm. with really nothing, to, no shows, no studio to show for it <laughs> is really uh, a strange place to be. But I think it's, you know, if you're committed to making, then that's... Mm. That's the definition of being an artist in some ways. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, I'm so super familiar with Susanna's work because she was my advisor, but also Shangram's work I've been familiar with. He's one of those artists who I've had like images of his work up in my studio for like, years. And, oh, wow. you know, there's a few paintings in particular that I was really interested in. And then when I joined um, National Academy, that was around the time that he was donating his diploma work to the Academy mm. uh, that all NAs do. And it happened to be what he was donating was one of my favorite paintings of his that I had had up in my studio for years. Oh my goodness. And then we got to go to the see our collection recently. Um, and mm -hmm. lo and behold, I finally get to see this painting, which is much bigger than I expected in yeah. person. <laughs> so it was this like a lovely full circle experience of being familiar with his work, but then getting that sort of intimate experience with his work in our collection storage. Yes. Like it seems like his his work has always been with you. You just didn't even know it. Both incredible painters. Both had mm -hmm. real impacts on me. Uh, and we get to have them both on the episode today. So Susanna, who was previously a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I was her student, she got a BFA from the University of Connecticut, an MFA from the Yale School of Art, and has been teaching at Columbia University in New York. Uh, she is known for her series of self-portraits, which she talks about on the episode is represented by Stephen Harvey Fine Art Projects in New York and has shown all over the country and the world. She's received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lewis Comfort Tiffany Award, and she lives here in New York. And Chagram Majumdar, who got his BFA from RISD, an MFA from Indiana University, has had shows at Stephen Harvey Fine Art Projects, Gary, New York, The Landing in LA, James Cohen Gallery in New York, and many more. He's shown all over the country and the world and has been a part of incredible residencies like McDowell, Yado, Sharp Studio Space. He spent time teaching in Baltimore at MICA and is now an assistant professor of painting and drawing at the University of Washington in Seattle. He also has two upcoming solo shows, one at Mammoth Gallery in London this summer and another at Gallery Merchanandi and Steinruck in Mumbai in 2024. Hi, my name is Susanna Coffey. And I'm a painter who has been a member of the Academy since 1996. I have known Shangram for not quite that long, but for a long time. And I'm a great <laughs> fan of his work. And uh, I am uh, now teaching at Columbia University, where I have been working for a while as an adjunct this year. And uh, I'm in Connecticut in what was once my father's garage uh, and is now my studio here outside of the city, but tomorrow I'm back in New York. Hi, uh, my name is Shangra Majumdar. I am a painter as well, and I'm right now in Seattle, which is where I moved last summer to take a position at University of Washington. And I'm in my studio, kind of slightly overcast, little sun is peeking through. I've known of Susanna long before I met Susanna. So, you know, she's one of those people who I had always wanted to meet, then we met, and I'm so happy to say that, you know, she's such a close friend and 
Uh, and I'm really excited to do this today. Thank you both for joining. I am also very excited to this day for reasons which will illuminate, I'm sure, on the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Susanna, I'm going to start by just asking you when we reached out and asked who you'd like to speak to on this podcast, why did you choose Shangram? Oh, well, I am a huge fan of his work. And I'm, uh, in addition to being uh, loving the work, uh, its concepts, its visuality, and uh, his mastery uh, in regards to color and use of color. So again, before I met Shangram, I saw his work and, and really fell in love with it. So it's been a real honor to have a, a relationship with him around our work. I chose Shangram because we share many aspects of painting and that is an understanding that an image uh, embodies more than its immediate iconographic association. That is, the pipe is not always a pipe, <laughs> to quote Magritte. Uh, so, and we also share kind of an understanding that the paint is an active participant in the image and that uh, I feel his paintings create locations that might be, to quote the Sufis, in the world, but not always of the world <laughs> in the ordinary sense. So there are many levels that I feel are present in the work of Shangram over the years. And as the work changes, those elements are still there. <laughs> Yeah, he's great. So maybe you guys could tell us a little bit about how you did meet. You kind of referenced how long you've known each other, but how did you two meet? Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. It's been a long time. Do you remember, Susanna? Like a direct, direct encounter? Like when did we, when did we, I feel like it was in New York. I think it was. It was in New York. It might have been at, at um, uh, Stephen Harvey's. Yeah. Either spend at the gallery at one of your shows, or your show, or maybe a sh somebody else says that we were. Think, was it mine? I think it was your show. Yes. Okay. Yes, because I had okay. seen the paintings in the gallery before the show was up, and I was so right. taken with them, particularly the one that we talked about. It's a painting of uh, a dark room, and at the uh, end of the space, there's a small figure. Right. So it's it caught my attention, mm -hmm. as your work always has, and I was hoping that you would be at the opening so I could meet you. And the aspect of that painting that was, I think, so representative of, of how I feel about your work had to do with the, the sense that the painting, which was dark, very richly colored, very deep, color was dark, but very very luminous. And it was of a kind of an ordinary hallway or mm -hmm. entering into a room and in the most direct figurative way. But the way that that little figure was at the back of the space and you had painted a coat hanger, a vivid mm -hmm. blue to indicate the beginning of the space. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is really a painting about two different worlds that are coexisting. And and uh, I was very happy that I could meet you at the opening of that show. And I asked you to come to my studio, yeah. uh, which you did. And we had a great studio visit. And I was very happy that we could do that. 
I remember, I, I do remember uh, going to your studio the first time and just, I was like, wow. <laughs> it was it was like stepping into this amazing envelope of time and space. It's like you walk through the hallway, you know, there are, you know, dance studios and kids around and then you go into your space and it almost felt like entering a monastery or a temple. It had this quality and, and there, is, there are kind of altars and like mm -hmm. actual altars in mm -hmm. your space. So I don't think that's too much of a jump for me to say that. But I also remember the light in there. You know, there is this kind of soft, diffused light that would come in through the windows. There is like paintings in progress, things on the easel. I remember noticing how your palette was vertical. Like you would, you kind of would have it vertical next to you. And I, I don't think I had ever seen anyone do that. And I was like, huh, interesting. Okay, mental note. And all the little things I feel like I learned from you, like putting brushes in the freezer. I am a big, <laughs> big, uh, I, it's like fits my mentality perfectly. And I, I support that and share that knowledge with as many people who are both working in oils, but also are procrastinators and mm -hmm. avoid washing brushes until the last <laughs> millisecond. Um, and yeah, and I think it would be fun to talk to you about this, which is like how some of the things we make at a certain point in our lives kind of foreshadow what's to come. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember making that painting and not knowing how to make that painting, but wanting to make that painting. And I felt it was, it's like learning to ride a bike almost, it felt like, you know, like things, it just doesn't fit right. I don't know what to do, but I know I want to do this. And, you know, there's this idea, but then there's this sense of all the different things I'm trying to bring into that, into that artwork, you know, in terms of the actuality of a space, the type of mood I want to create, metaphors through storytelling that I'm referring to, which in this case was one of the major festivals that happens is Durga Puja, which is happening at the end of this month, actually. And, uh, and it was such a key part of my, I guess, history when I lived in India, mm -hmm. um, going to those festivals every October. And the whole story and the myth behind it is wrapped up in both reincarnation, remanifestation, you know, this kind of, to some degree, I don't know how much I feel about the good and evil binaries, but there's so much in there. It's so dense and wanting to do something with that, but not knowing how to do it, you know? Mm. And now when I think about the paintings I'm making, actually, it's funny you brought that painting up, Susanna, the uh, other day also, is I've been thinking about some of those paintings from like four or five years ago and thinking, how would I reapproach them now with the vocabulary that feels more aligned with what I want to do and how I want to make. I do remember that coat hanger because the coat hanger I found on a sidewalk. I brought it uh, and I picked it up because it was turquoise. Uh, it was like this, it was like somebody had painted this coat and I took it apart and put it back together to simultaneously both be a coat hanger and a trident at the same time. You know, <laughs> just a lot of things um, picking in my brain that half of the time you know, no one knows what, what I'm doing. Half the time, I don't know what I'm doing. But that that painting really proved to me uh, something that I've talked about quite a bit, you know, with my 
my students, uh, particularly uh, in the past decade, that the act really precedes theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the theories come out of actions. Right. And, and actions come out of faith or hope. Yeah. Uh, and that 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 uh, that is a trident right there, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that re- that paintings in some way are given the history, the global history of painting, is reincarnation. Yeah, we could say that the life, the body of the act of painting, in a way, you know, is reincarnation. Every artist reincarnates another artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Re- and one gives birth to all sorts of other artists' uh, actions from the past, even musicians. And- Do you remember, I was, um, as soon as you said that, it made me, a question popped into my head, which is, do you remember your first painting? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the first painting, uh, thinking of myself as a painter, uh, I, I, I do what would be what I would think of as my first painting. And it would have been uh, not the paintings I did from, say, 1969 to 1980, what, 83, 84, maybe 85. Uh, not those. And I've just been mm-hmm. doing inventory of my very old paintings. So stop me if this is too, I'm going on too long about it, because they're right here, here amongst me, all paintings I did in the 60s and 70s. But the painting I'm thinking of, no. I, it is not here. Uh, it was a self-portrait, and I had been making many, many self-portraits because I'd gotten a job teaching figure painting mm. right out of graduate school. And I got this job in Chicago at the Art Institute. It was really, you know, wonderful opportunity for me. I was very grateful. Thank you, EEO. But I, I was teaching figure painting, and I had never given my generation, a lot of people talk about this, they did not teach painting in the traditional way. In my years coming up, it was sort of post-studio, a lot of other things that were really interesting, but not how to paint from observation. So I was painting a lot of self-portraits in order to be a better teacher. And I couldn't afford models at my $11,000 a year salary. (laughs) So I just painted myself to teach myself how to work from observation. Uh, and I was making other work. It was, you know, large 10, 12-foot paintings with mythological subject matter. But one day I just uh, started a self-portrait and I kept working on it. And I could keep working on it. And I, my vision changed that the idea of seeing what was in the mirror it really fed all the desire I had in regards to uh, the concepts that interested me that had to do with uh, multivalent identity of human appearance, uh, gender, et cetera, et cetera. There was a whole line of ideas that I'd been working with, but it was only in that painting that I felt it it swallowed it with one gulp, <laughs> and and I was reminded, and this is something else I probably talked about to all of you, of the blues musician Robert Johnson and that story about going to the crossroads and meeting the devil and, you know, being kind of a so-so musician one day and the next day, you know, he's amazing. 
And I thought that's how breakthroughs occur, though, that I had been trying for all of these things, all of these to, to have something in my painting for years, for decades, really. And, you know, I got some satisfactions, but I knew the work was lacking in some way. And it was in that one day it filled the bill. <laughs> I said, hello, <laughs> self-portraits. I'm never going to sell another painting. I'm never going to have another show. But this is the direction that I will go in. So, yes, I remember that so vividly. And then it stayed with you, obviously. It became one of the multiple threads that you've carried through, you know, to the present. I mean, I have so many questions off of that, you know. One is, was that scary? <laughs> well, you know, that my deal with me mm-hmm. was whatever my work wanted, I'd give it to it. Right. And that was my deal. And then I, I've kept that deal. Yeah. And I know you too are yeah. someone that has made that deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse. Yes, I have made. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you? <laughs> Tell me about the what you think and all about your first painting. Oh, man. I feel like every few years, like five to six to seven years, something shifts. And I feel like I get a little closer, you know? And I feel like this journey of like what I do when I walk through the studio doors and kind of re-engage with my brain and mind and body, in some ways, I feel like I'm not the same person. In other ways, I feel like I am. Mm-hmm. So for me, I have like key paintings that to me feel like aha moments. I don't think I would pick anything from grad school, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm always surprised by what I'm doing now and how in some ways they relate back to things. I was trying to figure out how to say or talk about those ideas, whether it's about, you know, a kind of interstitial, a space that is filled with promise and possibility and and how to explore that not through a space of anxiety and fear, but hope and possibilities. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with my own acceptance of myself as the kind of artist I am and admiring other ways of making, but realizing that's not who I am. But I guess to your question of the very first painting, I don't think it was... Uh, I did make self-portraits, and uh, one of my roommates would always make fun of me for making self-portraits in undergrad. The the most anxiety-filled emo paintings no one should ever have to see. (laughs) But I think towards the end of grad school, I made a painting of a whole group of figures in a plane. It doesn't look anything like what I'm making now, but I think it was about trying to bring this idea of transition and transit all with a kind of relationship to the body and also the format and what the sh- it was this long painting that kind of was shaped like the windows of an airplane it was like this long 12 13 foot painting i don't think it's a good painting but i think it had these germs of ideas that have always stayed and they feel like they're strongest now than they've ever been you know I was also thinking when you were talking about this self-portrait, it made me think of a phrase I think you've used before, which is this idea of disappearing into yourself. Mm -hmm. And I really am curious about that because it's like, 
I feel like I disappear when I'm looking at an artwork or engaging with an artwork. And I definitely feel like I disappear when I'm quote unquote in the zone. Do you have the same experience or what, uh, what does, like, I'm curious, like, can you, how do you maintain and do you look for it? Do you like, do you search for that? Or is that something that you know will come when you are working? Well, I would say to you and every other person on the planet, if you're looking at yourself in the mirror for seven years, you are <laughs> going to be disappearing to yourself. So there is no way around that. So there is no way around that. Uh, you know that game that children play to drive you insane when they repeat the same thing over and over again, right? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I know, I know that game. <laughs> yeah, you know that game, right? You have a child. <laughs> Well, well, that's what I do to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, in, uh, and what I have found, and I realized I, I did want to say something a little bit more about breakthrough and, and uh, the, selling your soul to the devil. It's really selling your soul to the angel because you work for a breakthrough mm-hmm. and you kind of do things for a long time and you may have the breakthrough Right. When you're trying for it, or it might happen as it did for me when you're just trying to be a better teacher. But that idea, I just paint. And then, of course, I disappear to myself. And then I'll start to appear as if I might be someone else. Right. And that's when I know I'm on the path to an image. So it's like leaving attachment to to, you know, how many wrinkles do I have? I mean, I'm like everybody. I'm vain and, you know. You're right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and conscious. Well, it's interesting you say that because, sorry. Oh, it's just that, that you, after you break through that aspect of looking at yourself uh, and you start to see uh, other people or way that one might uh, merge with other people, that's all. Well, I was going to say that the way you were describing this almost coming forward and pushing back or moving away, your paintings do that. Like in some of them, the the head, right? Like, the you know, it does come forward. Other times it's barely recognizable. It's, it's hidden. It's literally camouflage. Or mm-hmm. other times there, I was looking at some of your paintings recently and there's that one beautiful one. I don't think I've ever seen it in person. Of it's basically a dark, black painting, like almost like a minimal, mm-hmm. where there's very little shift between. I feel like this is the kind of subtlety that happens in Susanna's paintings. That wow, it's just like I just feel like I can keep looking. And I guess what I was thinking about is, yeah, your paintings do that. Like from painting to painting, it's it's not a given where the head is going to be, where the person will be, even though you know the general location where it is. Does that make sense? It's like, you know, something's there, but you don't know where it is almost psychologically uh, or even uh, metaphorically. I I think color does that. And and that's, you know, I'm always working to be able to use color uh, in, in a stronger and more flexible way, but color unfolds slowly. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's different than image. So if the, color is moving to in a, any given painting 
can move slowly towards a certain kind of physiognomy, persona, state of being, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's, so while the image is, you know, oh, God, another head, uh, hopefully the color is something mm-hmm. that uh, unfolds slowly and, and shifts what would be mm-hmm. a, a pre-known, easily seen image that is uh, the, the old head. Uh, and I guess I wanted to talk, because there's something I noticed in the growth of your work as I was looking at it, because the the painting I, to which I referred earlier, as were many of the paintings from that show, had to do with spaces that unfolded slowly that were uh, at face value, unremarkable, a closet, a painting rack, etc., and the idea of activity and movement came about through the image of a space, but it became a passage, or looking at the painting became an experience of passage because of your the color relationships you set up. And now your paintings have also a sense of movement. You've worked, I think, towards creating images that are on the cusp of representation, and the movement is now not about representation, but about the way that the paint picks up speed or slows down in relationship to a recognizable, iconic image. And so it's interesting how the issue of movement has shifted over these last few years in your work, especially with the very newest the painting we talked about yesterday, the yeah. uh, a fuchsia one with the light. Is it the one, with the rain, the that one you're talking about? Oh, yes, that rain painting. Oh, my goodness. That is so fabulous. All of those paintings have that quality. Right. And that is, as the earlier paintings were about passage and a kind of movement through quotidian iconography, a closet, a room, a paint rack, etc. Now the paintings offer movement from piece of paint to piece of paint, and the way that those gestures in the paint, the brush strokes or the large planes of uh, violently contrasting color, create movement in a very different way as they constellate around whatever iconographic information is in the painting. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> yes, with a question mark. It's interesting, you know, for me, like as you were describing, it's always interesting how somebody else describes the work you're making. Cause like when I'm making, there are no words in my head, right? And the only time words happen is like if I'm doing a studio visit or if I have to write, I don't know, a grant proposal or something like that, right? It's that time of the year again. <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. there's been so much shift in my life in the last six years, I have to say, you know, and also in the world. I don't think it necessarily revolves around me, just in this country, you know, on so many levels, you know, the politics uh, is a huge part of that. And I think the way the work has shifted to bring the body back, but where there is a kind of, like, as you said, iconography, there's a kind of symbolic component to that, but also a really personal component. I think that's something I've been searching for. And I didn't know where it was until I found it. It's it's like one of those things, you will know it when you see it kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier that 
of a daughter. And, you know, I feel there is something very intense about spending a lot of time watching somebody develop and having to care for somebody while <laughs> the world around you it doesn't seem to care about human beings or the, or the country mm -hmm. or, you know, and that weird disjuncture, like I'm thinking of 2016, basically, and, and, and following a few years after that, and the, <laughs> a certain, you know, time in the country. And I felt driven to want to paint the figure in a way that I hadn't felt before. And I think, you know, like, as you're saying, there's a lot of reasons people paint. Some come out of a habit, some come out of wanting to see something in front, some come out of pleasure. And I feel like I had kind of like gone through those stages and I needed something more. And I think that personal connection, I needed that, you know? And, uh, and I, when I found it, it, there was this amazing aha moment. And I think there's also this sense of change that also has to do with location, you know? And I, I would love to talk to you about that because, you know, on one hand, you've retained this thread in you, multiple threads in your work as you've done this itinerant shift between Chicago and New York for many, many years. You're not doing it anymore, I know. You're in Connecticut now. And just me moving across the country this last year felt like the biggest shift in my life as I possibly could have made. You know, two pods, <laughs> cars moving across the country, family, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I was thinking about like, what do I do? You know, and for me, I feel very affected by where I am. Like if I go to a residency, I don't feel like I can make the same work there that yeah. I was making in the studio. And I'm really inspired by how you've found a way to keep yourself engaged by either inventing or coming up with new motifs that have carried you through. Like you said, like you needed to learn how to teach, how to paint the head and so you took that on as part of your own experiment. And then suddenly that experiment became part of one of your paths, uh, one of your main major paths. I guess my question as part of this is, I would love to hear you talk about, I guess, the challenge of that. And is maybe it's not a challenge. Maybe that's really natural for you of maintaining these threads while you are on the plane, on the train, you know, in the car, back and forth, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to make it brief. Uh, I do remember a drawing, uh, actually, probably when I was working with you, Adrian, on the plane during a time when I was flying back and forth yeah. uh, from Chicago. And I would uh, draw. I'd have a little mirror and put it up on the little snack shelf, et cetera. Uh, it totally freaked the staff on the plane out because they couldn't. <laughs> but it wasn't drawing, but it was the mirror. Okay. <laughs> it was just, they were just like so upset by this. <laughs> They'd keep going by and say, well, I think you better put that away. Uh, anyway, I'm digressing, <laughs> but it was pretty funny. <laughs> we should all uh, try this on the next time we fly. Yes, on the, yeah, oh, no, they've, they've been through so much. Those, <laughs> those uh, people who work on the planes, they've had a tough time of it. I think because uh, many of the issues that I care about in representation didn't feel satisfied. And so that helped me to keep going. Uh, of course, I've, in the last few years, actually, I haven't made portraits, and I, I hope I go back to it. But I feel often that younger artists are doing what I wanted to do, 
there are so many more young, young people who are making such great work about figuration and about the world and these, what I call the beautiful, terrible, you know, very beautiful images, of very difficult things, you know, Staphne Arthur and Clintel, Clintel Steed, uh, Titus Kafer, uh, Ray Lise Vasquez, John Reeves, so many, so many wonderful young painters. And I look at them and I think, well, I don't know, maybe my job's done. I'm not sure. And I'm still painting a lot, but I'm mostly painting at night and uh, doing other kinds of work, uh, my other uh, areas of interest. But that it is interesting because I f feel like these last few years, the artists who so many incredible young painters are working in ways that mean something to me mm -hmm. and have always meant something to me. But I felt I had to keep my toe in and, you know, keep teaching. And all of a sudden, wonderful work is coming out into the world. So in an odd way, I kept going because I, I felt... Gee, why are images so gendered? I'm always quoting, you know, the James Baldwin statement about the fantasy of the mind of the Republic. And that fantasy uh, has always been so toxic and so limiting, so cruel, and so bizarrely limited, even in the art world. Now I feel that that is, uh, you know, so many young people are taking up images, making images that are going right to the heart of uh, that unreality. Mm -hmm. uh, so I haven't been painting myself, and maybe I won't again. I don't know. We'll see. Well, a huge part of so many people you mentioned is the other role of you as a mentor to so many amazing artists that are working right now. I mean, you know, like, as I mentioned earlier, like, I knew of your paintings, but the other way I knew of you was as a teacher. Like I would hear about, you know, I would be talking to somebody and they would say, oh, I work with Susanna and, you know, you have to meet her and everything I learned about color, you know, like these phrases would keep coming back. And because you've taught for a long time, you know, I think you, there's this amazing, which I'm beginning to experience also, which is that new people are coming out that you've worked with, you know, and they're just. I think you said in a really nice way is that they're not afraid. They're not tied by history. Uh, I feel like even when I was a student or even when I was starting out, people were attached to it, almost like dead weight, you know. So they couldn't break free of tradition. They couldn't break free of history, of the, you know, the hero, you know, worshiping and all of these other things that come through. And I feel like painting is such a strange place because of its history that it's hard to break away from that history, you know? I remember talking to an artist um, saying she went into sculpture video and more kind of new media space because it didn't have that many train cars <laughs> that is that you have to you know carry with you. The, the baggage was, it was less baggage. But I've always been drawn to the baggage, I guess, you know, but I feel like there is something new to be found in that, in all of that stuff. And you just have to look in different places, you know, mm -hmm. I like to talk about the idea that like, you have to just dig a hole somewhere else. There's nothing else in some of these other holes. You know, it's been pretty well cleaned out. <laughs> That's right. I feel like curators now <laughs> are beginning to do that, which is exciting, right? Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, re and kind of revisiting age-old narratives and saying, actually, there's another way to look at this, you know? 
So that to me is really exciting. And even with teaching, I feel like that, right? This kind of push yeah. to, I mean, most of my teachers were because, I mean, I grew, kind of grew up in the Western canon, you know? So everything I feel like I've learned that's outside of it has been self-taught. And I mean, I guess you can also argue most artists are self-taught, right? We pick and choose what we want to learn to some degree, right? Maybe that's a huge part of how my the work has shifted. Okay, this is totally off topic and I'm jumping. And I wanted to use this opportunity to ask you about some things I'm really curious about, Susanna, which is your relationship to dance. <laughs> I know. Oh my goodness. There's no clear segue into this, but since I've known you, I've, you know, I've known, you know, that's a huge part of your life. You travel, you know, like I'm curious about like, where did this start, this part of you? Well, it is, uh, uh, I would say it's the most wonderful part of my life. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for being introduced as a child to the, um, the company of Alvin Ailey. And I'll, I'll give you the short form. When I was a little girl, I won a scholarship to a ballet school. And I love to dance. I think, oh God, I, I'll, I won't segue too much. I'll, I'll try to make it really, really close. But I, I know <laughs> that when I was an infant, when my parents uh, were young, they take me to the jazz clubs on 53rd Street, and my father had many friends that were musicians, uh, jazz musicians. And so I think in my very early years, uh, music, live music, and uh, music in which uh, rhythm was actually playing a creative role and a vocal role, an expressive role, not just keeping the beat. So I think that was in, that was in my crib. And I, I'm very grateful for that. So that later on, uh, when uh, I was able to take a class with the Ailey Company after uh, being a baby ballerina, not a very good baby ballerina, mind you, <laughs> but I just wanted to dance. <laughs> and uh, uh, I discovered the, uh, the African canon and the idea that the concepts that were brought forth in that music just filled my body and soul with meaning and an understanding that, uh, that the, I guess, reincarnation, you know, I'm dancing. I'm taught by someone that was taught by someone that was taught by someone that was taught. Years of dances handed down from person to person in the body. And I think as a, as a girl child and uh, allowed to learn this tradition, it was very transformative to me. And even though I knew I'd never be a professional dancer, I got to see professional dancers. And once I got to, when I was a waitress, wait on Alvin Ailey, God. Uh, and it was like, like meeting, uh, you know, meeting one of the great beings. It, it was just learning to me. It was just learning in the most Mm -hmm. soul-transforming, generous way. And, you know, I just danced recreationally for a long time, taking classes when I could. But when I was 40 and moved back to New York, I was walking down Broadway during a heat wave, and I heard the drums coming from a dance school nearby. And those of you that knew, somebody out there must know Leslie Dance and Skate. 
And I followed the sound and I found a whole uh, world of teachers, musicians, dancers. And I just really have never left. And while it's very separate from my painting, I do feel the, uh, what I learn from the music. And of course, these classes have live percussion. And so, you know, it's an honor. These drummers and teachers are really imparting to their students something very important about being alive, uh, an awareness that uh, the air is not empty. The air is full. The air you breathe is full. There is no voids. And how you can step into it is one of the stories of that tradition of West African dance. And it's true in East Africa also. But I'm not, I'm less familiar, although I have danced there. So, anyway, that's the story. So, I'm still doing it. <laughs> well, I imagine that also probably brought in a whole another community, or you became part of a another type of a community than the art community or the, you know, this kind of pedagogical thread mm -hmm. that you've maintained, which is another type of community. And I don't know. I was kind of curious about how has this changed over time for you? I guess a simpler way of asking is, you know, everyone talks about this, but I'll just ask you, which is like, what feels different to you about New York, you know, and the community there? Because there are people you would see and not see as you would go back and forth. And now you're here. And even the other communities, the dance communities, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not a very social person, although I seem like a social person. I know many people in the in the dance world, but uh, I'm and I know many people in the uh, art world. But you know, I, I prefer to look at work. Yeah, I, I I don't have time to socialize really, especially not when I was teaching full time. I've seen you dance. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in my dance world, I, I there's so many lessons. Well, one body of work that I'm guessing is probably still continuing, I remember from one of the more recent shows of your work, um, where you were making paintings of women in their oh. <laughs> studios, artists in their studios, you would be going to their places and sitting with them and working there. I thought that's such a great, it's like a different way of giving back. You know, also I was thinking it's uh, creating an archive but an archive through a personal mm. contact, you know, and then the painting itself is an archive of marks of a time and place, especially of the type of painter you are. And it's so rich on so many levels. It's also amazing to see how somebody else is in somebody else's space. I remember you talking about you didn't want to, you wanted to like, in a way, mm -hmm. disappear, like not take mm -hmm. up too much space, mm -hmm. right? The paintings are also smaller, you know, they're handheld in a certain way. And it's like this idea of so much of this, another universe is arriving from painting to painting. It's another person's universe within that, within that rectangle or surface. So, you know, I just love that group. Oh, and thank you. I'm curious, is that, is that, I hope it's continuing. Oh, that's still ongoing, Adrian. <laughs> I have to visit your studio. Uh, uh, I'd love that. <laughs> oh, well, we're, we're, I'm holding you to it. Uh, 
I started it because of the Gagosian show in 1930, uh, in 1930 and 2013 right. that was the <laughs> artist studio. And it was a fabulous show, you know, art from the Renaissance to the period of now. But I went to that show, and you know who was in that show. No women. And pretty much all Europeans or European-Americans. And so I thought, what? You know, how many people, studio could they have gotten for this show? They could have had amazing paintings in that show. Yeah. But the not how, the omissions to me, I thought, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just do it. I'll just paint artists and, their, artists and writers in their studio and fill in the blanks. Uh, so that was how that came about. Could, could you talk a little bit, because I, I know that some of the, especially your transitional paintings, had something to do with your daughter yeah, and, and your observations of her. And I was very moved by that. I felt that your attention to her and your, that is, children never sit still. And you, the kind of renewed, right. uh, one could say, gestural quality and intensely gestural quality of your recent work. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. <laughs> Um, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I hinted at that a little bit earlier when I referenced 2016 when Trump was elected and our daughter was born. And I think, one, it kind of, like as I was mentioning, it kind of reframed and like woke me up again in a way to the body in a different way, in a way that was physical, full of movement, full of action, not as a passive object or a being, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, it wasn't like a compositional tool or device, you know, as much as those things are part of making images, I cannot, I can handle like talking about a figure as a rectangle or as a triangle. <laughs> I mean, that just is ridiculous to me when people talk about like negative shapes. I'm like, no, there's a person there. <laughs> <I know. laughs> that person has a name. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like those are particular people and experiences. Anyway, so like, I think, you know, I was looking for a, a kind of a way to link this kind of daily, my life, you know, studio, take care, studio, take care. You know, like this just became another thing I did. And, you know, when you spend a lot of time doing one thing, it just creeps into your work. I think it was really natural. I didn't really set out. And I don't really think of them as, to be totally honest with you, paintings of my daughter, but more, I guess, uh, in a way, it just crept in. I, certain ideas crept in, and the place where it landed was this idea of a body in motion, and then that became this way of thinking about a kind of a gesture that is full of possibility. And I love the idea that a body can be exist in a space and possibility of hope in moving forward, moving through being able to decide uh, how much or how little they want to be seen, mm. you know. And I think those ideas began to really link up with my innate or intuitive relationship to the body, which has always been about both being and not being, both being here and gone tomorrow kind of a thing. And I'd never been able to figure out what really drove me to both want to paint the figure and not want mm -hmm. to paint the figure at the same time, because it was never a formal thing. It's like that thing when sometimes you want to talk to people, other times you don't. Like you're saying, you're, people might think you're social, but you not always, you know? 
And I think, you know, maybe just speaking in context of how I kind of exist in the world, I feel implicit pressure sometimes to make work along certain lines, you know, other times I don't. Uh, and I think for me, I want to have the choice and I wanted that choice to be present mm -hmm. in the painting, like where a body can exist in the way it wants in, and, and part of it is part of it isn't. So I think that's where it comes. And I think your, your comment about the gesture is right on both. It was this, um, what I started doing was drawing from video stills. Like when people have kids, they have a lot of videos of their kid doing nothing, <laughs> basically. And, you know, sometimes I would find something in it that was really interesting and I just started drawing from them. And, you know, they're like old school, like gesture drawings of a person moving in space. I remember doing that as an undergrad, you know, model moving and you're trying to track that body. But this time it wasn't just anybody. It was you know, somebody I know, uh -huh. someone with a name. And so I was looking for particularities and then realizing actually that's another way of describing. Like it's not something that's below a form, but it is the, what should I say? The energy mm -hmm. of that form, right? It's all that you need. And I was thinking like, you know, could I make the painting just with these lines? And uh, so it really like opened up my painting vocabulary, my color vocabulary, the subject matter, and what's been really exciting is bringing them back together, but not in a hierarchical way of like this and then this and this, like one on top of the other, but adjacent to each other, mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that archaeologically, you know, or even in terms of the places that I've lived or I'm drawn to where uh, buildings hold histories and bodies hold histories and you know, the old and the new lived next to each other or, you know, a hundred-year-old brownstone next to a new development. And uh, those tensions and those anxieties, I feel like, are so shared and palpable. It's not something you only experience if you go into a museum or you go into a historical site in Rome or India or wherever, but it's just all around us. And, and I think I'm always aware of time when I'm with my daughter, uh, I'm aware of time when I'm with my dad. And I think how do you manifest time physically is something I'm interested in in the space of painting because for me, it's a place and a body at the same time. And now there's the body of the painting and then there's the image of the body aligning itself. I don't know. To me, that's just really exciting to think about all those things and figure out what do I do next? You know, like, okay, now... How do I explore this further? So I feel, yeah, I'm just like in it. Right? <laughs> I'm picking up on a couple things of like this through line, because earlier we were talking about disappearing, I think, in relationship to Susanna's portraits. And mm -hmm. then you, Shankar, are talking about being and not being and sort of figure present, but not mm -hmm. present. Or, mm -hmm. And this idea of like, but I, I talk a lot at my work about visibility and invisibility as it relates to um I, I primarily work with the black female figure. I'm a black female. It's how I exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that this is sort of this through line that seems to be coming up. And, you know, I'm going to bring myself into the group, all three of us. Do it. And yes, this, for sure. <laughs> this idea of who we are in existence to this history, the very weighty history of painting that we talked about before. Right. I also have to insert my own, you know, um, experience of being one of the mentees of Susanna, who was my professor and advisor in grad school. And, the ability of you, Susanna, in that time, 
grad school is not easy. (laughs) I was working through my own identity as a painter and needing to paint and needing to like deal with the history of painting, but also being really interested in other things, materials and like bringing those into my studio, but feeling really insecure and unsure of whether that was like a valid way to make work. But like the like validation that you could move out of that space and move back into it was really useful for me. So to come back to this idea and that's all just because I felt like I needed to, (laughs) I needed to sort of like insert my like gratitude for the mentorship of Susanna. But the, this idea, I'm curious on, on this, your perspectives on like the, I don't know if it's a necessity, but the like impulse to be and not be in relationship to this long history that's excluded, you know, sort of in the canon, excluded the visibility, the explicit Mm -hmm. visibility of painters like us, you know, women, people of color, like we're not the, the canon, the Western canon that I, you know, I was taught that I was brought up with. And so this like playing with like where we even exist in our own work is I think really curious. I, I think of it, I'm, I'm keep, I hadn't ever thought of this word before reincarnation, before Shangram brought it up, but I think it has to do with the unlived dreams of our forebearers. I think that uh, other aesthetic moves, whether it's painting, sculpture, food, dance, whatever, I, I think that it needs doing. <laughs> Some things need doing that are not done. And it, it is now the time to do them when you can. And there's something like a, a drive that, I mean, that it needs doing because not everything has been done. Not everything has been said. There's a lot that lives but has not been spoken about. And we all know what happens with secrets. I think, you know, and artists often are those who come forth and say, it was secret, but it is not going to be secret anymore. (laughs) And now we can see it. We can hear it, we can read it, we can taste it. That legacy, I mean, it it is an odd way to think about it. And I I won't talk too long about this, but Marcuse talks about this a little bit in Eros and Civilization. And I'm always repeating this, but I, I will again, that in the aesthetic dimension, time is not destructive. In regular life, time destroys lasting gratification. And so if I keep my coffee for two weeks or my, you know, crackers, they'll be disgusting and moldy. But in in the aesthetic (laughs) dimension, I can go to Teotihuacan and it's several thousand years old and it gratifies somewhat in the way that uh, the uh, makers wanted. In the case of dancing, you're dancing basically with the teacher several hundred years ago who's this lineage Mm. of people teaching certain classical dances, and uh, it changes over the years, but it's still the same canon. And my new teachers, say Baba Karambai, reinvigorates the tradition, uh, because there's some things in the dances that didn't exist before and need to now. And Shangram, I think that's true, really true, uh, in everything you were saying about, you know, reinvigorating your work and finding ways to let the present manifest. And that is the immediate present for you and the social presence. And also 
thinking about your infancy in another country. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may have been a long time ago on the clock, but there are certain things that live inside you. And I think when you talked about the festival, I thought, oh, that's alive. Mm-hmm. That is still alive mm-hmm. and needs to be in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think, Adrian, your your question or proposition of, I guess you're talking about the responsibility, right? That we feel or we have as makers in the world now, right? And I guess I feel the most responsibility to make exactly what I want to make, regardless of both adjacent or external expectations, you know? So if I think about expectations that might be coming via, and I think social media definitely flattens it because things become simplified in many ways. But I don't know. I mean, I I guess I think that there are more than one ways to be present in the world. I'm already in a way making work and I don't know if the work also has to have an image of mm-hmm. me or whatever, or person of color in a way that also already exists. I mean, that's the other thing I think a lot about. Like there's so many people making work now, which is amazing, who are people of color. So to me, that's like creates room hopefully, for different ways of approaching that, right? It's not like, oh, that everyone has to make the work this way because that just flattens experience again and becomes like a canon. And it's like, you know, if you are of this type, you should make work of this type. And it, I think there's external and internal pressures to both present yourself as most belonging, you know? And there are times I don't really feel like I'm not real. <laughs> like I'm faking it. I'm on so many levels, like, you know, faking it as a teacher. I'm faking it as an artist. I'm faking it as, as uh, a parent. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing. But I do think those questionings are important because they are checkpoints. I think it's also a way of being vulnerable. You know, I, I do think um, I don't want to make work that is a kind of like cleaned up version of an idealized mm-hmm. experience of myself, like how I would love to ha- be, but more about kind of how things are and that how things are are not necessarily a negative, but they're just another way of being, you know? Um, I do think that idea of, to sort of clarify, but build on what you're saying, that idea of disappearing or mm-hmm. invisibility or not being that I'm kind of like drawing a third is actually yeah. kind of what you're saying of like, yeah. The presence like that does exist and is kind of speaking a little bit maybe to that question of responsibility. Right. But I think the freedom is the invisibility mm-hmm. or the disappearing or the like yeah. allowing, like not needing to be or right. be explicitly in or represented is that space. Or how to mm-hmm. be, right? Like sometimes we choose to disappear. Sometimes we choose to be part of a group. It can be a superpower. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Disappearance is a superpower uh, and invisibility mm-hmm. And I think I've said this before, like having the choice to be visible when you want is a kind of like the ideal, like, you know, mm-hmm. privilege in a certain way. Right. Like uh, and uh, and in a way we can do that in our work. We control that reality. And I choose to control my reality in that space, not in an idealized way, but in a way that feels the most real to me. And I do believe that the more voices there are, the more options 
people of color or all people feel they, they would see, you know. But thank you for making that connection because it is that valence, that kind of slippage is something I'm constantly thinking about. You know, the other thing, Susanna, you mentioned food really quickly. And I think food is such a great metaphor. And I'm always talking about food because like if you're eating at some level, you might be aware as you're eating, you might be thinking, oh, I'm eating this and it's connected to this tradition, but then I'm eating this. You know, like you are going back and forth between history and the present moment, you know, so you're disappearing and arriving, you know, whether it's something, you know, Japanese inspired or if it's kind of a family lineage, you know, omakase or something, you know, it's like, I feel like food is such a great way to present something that feels authentic, but where the maker disappears, you know, and I guess dance and so many of the other disciplines are that way where the action continues, but the experience lives in the body of the person experiencing the, in, in our case, it would be the viewer, I suppose. But I, I want part of that. I want some of that in my work where somebody is aware of my heritage, histories, et cetera, but not, I don't want that to be weighing down constantly on them. You know, they can engage with that and see the work through that lens and maybe you could argue you could never see the work from any other lens. But at the same time, if they forget for a second, I don't want to fault them for that. I feel like I unfortunately have to bring us towards our close. <laughs> because I, I could yes. listen to this forever and talk to you guys forever. Uh, that's why I was looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> but the conversation I always end with or the question I end with is, bringing us into the context of the National Academy and what it means to be a part of this collective of artists and architects for all that that means and how you guys understand yourselves as a part of it and the collective as a whole. Susanna, do you want to take that first? Okay. <laughs> well, yes, I'm very grateful and I'm very grateful to those that elected me. It is the history of uh, the Academy is both wonderful and not so wonderful. But uh, oh, I was just reading uh, about a book on Innes lately, and he was having the same conversation as that we often have. Uh, so it has so much potential. And as a community, it's really becoming better, stronger, more representative of this moment in U.S. culture and representative society. However, it is the National Academy and not the New York Academy, as we said. And so uh, I feel very strongly that all of you members, if anyone's listening, that we must really try harder to make it a National Academy and not just a New York Academy. So, you know, it's a, both a positive and sort of a, a wish and really... I think it, if we're going to call ourselves National Academy, we really need to be a National Academy. And I also want to express my gratitude to the staff. I think the staff has worked so hard to keep the Academy afloat during a rather difficult and one could say unhoused time. And it has been this wonderful, dedicated, talented, inspired staff that has kept things going. And I wanted to thank you all for that huge and very beautiful, effective 
effort. I mean, it's all about you guys. So it's just exciting to be a part of this, uh, this long history and try to like make those changes and keep it afloat. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I will just pick up on what Susanna said. You know, I'm a fairly recent entry. And, and I think the question that I asked a lot initially was like, what does it mean? You know, like, what do I do? Like, you know, how can I be helpful and et cetera, especially also now when I became a member, I was in New York and then like I moved and moved again. <laughs> it's like, and moved to Baltimore and then I moved to Seattle. So definitely not in the triborough area or anything like that. So it's an open question in my mind about like, what does it mean to be part of this, you know, other than the honor, other than knowing that I was elected by artists and peers who I look up to, you know, so that's something that I would love to work with people on. And I think in order for that to happen, there just needs to be more people that are not in New York that are members, you know, so because I think it's a pretty skewed demographic for sure. That's just location. There's so many other demographics that are also skewed. And I'm sure that'll change over time, but I think that needs to be actively engaged with for sure. But yeah, I think the Academy needs to decide if it's going to be and kind of a, a hangout place, uh, which I think historically in the past it was, and or if it's going to have take on use some of its agency in a way that positions itself as something much more visible and participatory, you know, in the world, because I think there's room for it for sure. And I think you know I feel like other people are talking about that in the National Academy. I've heard other people speak about this, so I'm not going to go on that tangent anymore, but. I would love to participate in ways that is that I can. I was on the membership committee for a while and I could never make the meetings because the meetings would always happen at times when I was teaching. Uh, so I'm we're, I'm dealing with the three hour time difference. Uh, and but that's that's a small that's a small issue. There are other ways. I'm sure things could be addressed, you know, but I do want to quickly say at uh, this project that you started, Adrian, last couple of years during the COVID and all of that. I think it's not a small thing and I think it's a big thing. And I think it's, it brings people like Susanna and me together to talk in a way that maybe we don't speak and people who may no, not know each other. So I hope it continues. And, and uh, so thank you for being part of this and doing this. Well, thank you because I, I, Angelique and I yeah. talk all the time about how like we, this is just, it's so much fun for us to do. Like this is, we would choose to do this all day, every day, <laughs> if we could. So it's really like, it was a no brainer for me. I just had to figure out how to actually make a podcast happen. <laughs> but the conversations, but the idea that the podcast is like at least a small element that allows us to be national, that we can have mm -hmm. this conversation from Seattle to Connecticut to New York. And, you know, we've been able to engage people in LA and, you know, we're in Chicago and we're not, we're not just exhibiting space in New York that only the New York members right, get to right. experience, but that this mm -hmm. can help us be national. Totally. You know, using the COVID experience and technology dependence to our advantage. <laughs> so I really appreciate you guys participating. And yeah, I could listen to you talk all, <laughs> all day. So it was really such a pleasure. Any other last, you know, Parting thoughts or I'm 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 loving the light that's just uh, I mean you all won't see this because it'll be audio but I'm just gonna oh. say there's like this light <laughs> cutting through 
uh, in Susanna's studio <laughs> that's hitting the left side of her head and looks like it's from a skylight. And like, I feel like there's a Susanna painting. There's a painting there. <laughs> it's like this glow of light, um, you know. Um, it, is, it is a beautiful sight. Thank you guys yeah. so much. I so appreciate how much help you gave us. And, and uh, you know, first of all, the project alone, but it's really, really thanks. It's really great. And Shangram, it's so great to see it's you. Same here. And it's all orange over there. Oh, yeah. With that blue microphone. I know. And my <laughs> it's plywood. Really and I don't even, I don't even know what the hell's There's going. a painting. I love that the painters are like <laughs> framing up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, Angelic, thank you as well. Yeah, thanks so much. It's really great. Okay, I will take any more of your time. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, bye, Thank Angelique. you so much. Bye. Okay, bye. You're listening to Exquisite Corpse. That was so sweet. Honestly. I mean, it was just, I didn't, I didn't want to stop hearing them. It was so hard to stop the conversation. Yeah. They really had like a nice flow and their connection seemed really effortless. It definitely seemed like the conversation pivoted between them, like in a balanced way. And they, each time it had like deeper and deeper, like introspective questions. Yeah. I felt like there was just such a clear mutual respect. It was just palpable to see how much they admire each other, respect one another. And I think that I, like questions is very specific questions come out of when people know each other and their practice really well. Definitely. Like, what do you feel like resonated with you the most listening to this? Uh, so many things. I love the way they talk about painting. I mean, just like the terms and like the way they're they're talking about the compositions and how they're thinking about it and moving through it and mm -hmm. did you hear it like this investment in the material that thing that really like gets me back into painting yes honestly it was really helpful just hearing how you talked about painting in your own like uh investment in the material and just the different approaches that you can take with painting and so I definitely was taking some notes you know it was like terms like gesture and the importance of emulating gesture and manifesting time as a body. It was a lot of deep things. And so um, it was really interesting, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the way they acknowledge the weightiness of painting was so spot on to what I was talking about before. I mean, really illuminating that period of time in grad school where I just... I stopped painting. I moved away from it to explore other materials. There's so much there and it's really hard to take that on when you're figuring out who you are as an artist. But... I just loved how they talked through all of these different ideas. I also was thinking about something. What's that? What were you thinking about? Um, I just really vibed with when you brought up the invisibility, visibility aspect mm -hmm. of the conversation. I don't know. I just think like, especially as an artist of color, sometimes there's this unnecessary expectation, mm -hmm. you know, of the type of work that you can create. I don't know. I think for myself specifically, like I really love abstract expressionism and sometimes it can be perceived as not black art. But actually, uh, I went to the Independent this past weekend and I saw this really great abstract work and I actually found out that it was by a Black artist, Joe Ray. And I think it just like really just reemphasized the importance of creating without bounds and just knowing that how we operate as artists of color is not indicative of our, our identity per se, you know, and it's really important for us to 
to remain open-ended with our with our practice and to not feel like we have to categorize something so early, but just knowing that as we continue to grow and like develop our visual language, that these things will come naturally. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, any artist that is essentially not white, straight, cis, male is in some point of their career experiencing somebody expecting something of their work based on their identity. And it's an unfair pressure and there should be more openness to what we can make. But I think in response to that pressure, artists intentionally, unintentionally, consciously, subconsciously play with these ideas of how present they are physically or visibly in the work, how present their identity is in the work. So when we were speaking and I was recognizing that there was this like idea of disappearing or invisibility in Susanna's work and Shangram's work and my work, there's also this like commonality that there's expectations from a woman, from a man of color, from a woman of color mm. to present themselves in their work in a certain way. And there's an, yeah. uh, an ability to subvert that expectation by removing yourself or playing with your visibility and your invisibility and using invisibility as a superpower to yeah. sort of create a different conversation or more space for more conversations within the canon and within the space that you want to create work. Yeah. I mean, I think taking back that power is so important. And I feel like um, even just looking at both of their practices, like for Susanna to be doing these self-portraits in such a like really intentional way. And then for Songram with like his, his work of like removing the individual but like having these layers of texture and like little details, like it is interesting to see that relationship between both of them. Yeah. And I, and I, one of the reasons why in, in mid conversation, I wanted to sort of course correct to clarify my question is because I don't think it's about a responsibility to have the conversation. It's, yeah. it's about creating space to have whatever conversation you want. Yeah. That freedom is critical. Yes. Adrian. You know, I'm just coming with the questions, okay? We're just going to keep the ball rolling. Come at me. Come at me. <laughs> so honestly, I thought um, that I knew where you were from. And then as we were at Project for Empty Space for our program, and someone asked you that question, you named at least seven different locations. <laughs> and so it made me think back to Sangra when he was talking about how when he moved from Baltimore to Seattle, how that had an impact in his work. And so you, being a nomadic queen yourself. My nomadic self. Yes, of course. Moving every every couple of years. Just bopping <laughs> around town in the world. Uh, Professional mover. <laughs> yes. I was wondering, like, did that, did your work have a similar um, impact as you were, as you were moving from place to place? It's an interesting question because I think when you're in the midst of it, you don't recognize how much the move or the place is impacting your work. Mm. But there are a couple examples I can think about. One was moving to Sydney and suddenly I'm in this like very lush tropical environment. But then also there's like a lot of environmentalists in Sydney who like their main goal is to restore the native plants of Sydney. And you quickly learn if you ask anybody who's into plants there that most of these like palm trees and banana plants and stuff aren't native to Sydney. They're not native to Australia at all. And they're brought in. And there's a lot of places like this. And so we have this um, generic understanding of the tropics because these plants have been have like migrated around the world through um, the efforts of colonialism and bringing, you know, 
plants and people everywhere that they weren't originally from. And so that kind of lineage and history got me really interested in that in my work particularly looking at plants and the connection to colonialism and the the traveling around. So my work got really green and lush, and that's actually kind of more what people know mm. my work to be, um, really started when I moved to Atlanta. Atlanta, in some ways, is like a place of origin for me in that I lived there when I was a kid. My parents actually live there now. They moved back there. My dad's family is from there. And my last name, Tarver, if you do a little research, there's a Tarver, Georgia, and there's like, it connects back to the history of slavery. There's a plantation, there's the Tarver plantation. Oh, wow. So suddenly I was in this environment that has this like deep rooted connection to my own origin story and my own personal connections and a real palpable sense of like how that was like changing how I was thinking about my environment. And I made a whole body of work that was maybe the most personal work I've ever made. So there have been these like very real connections to how I've made work based on the environment, the like timing, the situation. Yeah. So it was really interesting to kind of hear Shangram's relationship to things like the birth of his daughter or politics and how, whether you're trying to or not, these things are affecting you and your work. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's interesting to think of when you are making work in certain places and within history itself, they, they kind of like act as like little more little markers and as a timeline Mm. for your practice like as they're evolving but it's like the work itself is like this little like bubble of a very specific memory or experience and how I don't know it is a really interesting thing to see to see them looking at them from the end of like the continuation the progression and I think on along those lines of like looking back at it you're you're not necessarily realizing it's happening at the time, but what they talked about too is this idea of like letting the work take you where it needs to take you. And that's something that like, not just like I think um, Bill and Francis talked about this as well, just kind of like letting the work, like investing in the work and letting the work move you through. And then you kind of look back and recognize that this is what was happening, the environment and the situations and everything changed the work, but you were just responding to what you felt like needed to happen in the work. Yes, you're responding to the times. And I think that's something like really important to think about as artists. I really feel like artists, they tell the truth, especially when it comes to history and how it is remembered. And even that as artists, it is a radical act of like how we retell history and remember it. And so I think that's really powerful. So this has been a really fun episode. I mean, for me, I'm a painter. This is like all up in my painter world. Uh, How is it for you? Yes. No, I think it was an interesting opportunity to learn more about the painter's world. And I definitely learned some new adjectives and uh, sentences <laughs> that I can regurgitate in further openings. <laughs> impress, impress the other viewers. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's up next on the podcast? Sure. So we're super excited. This is our second, second chain link conversation with uh, artists and architects. And so we're having artist Mary Miss and architect Jeannie Gang. And yeah, it's a really fun. We're happy to have Mary Miss back and excited to have you guys experience this conversation. Yeah, I love all the episodes where we get to cross pollinate between the architects and the artists. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Angelique, thanks for being here and helping make this even more fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. This conversation was recorded on September 14th, 2022. Exquisite Corpse is written and produced by Adrian Elise Tarver and Anjali Goins and co-produced, mixed, and edited by Mike Clemo and Wade Strange at See Through Sound.